Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. I'm Aaron Stump, and uh, I'd like to talk about a different topic. Well, we, I was talking about extensionality and type theory for a while, um, and for a few episodes here, and there's definitely more one could plumb with that. Um, in particular, I you know, would have been potentially interested in trying to talk about some of this. There's some work of this um, researcher, Martin Hoffman, who passed away un unexpectedly not too long ago. Um, his dissertation was called uh, Extensional Concepts in Intentional Type Theory, something like that. He's trying to show how to translate extensional um, features into an intentional theory. And, you know, pretty pretty serious stuff and, and very influential. But um, I want to switch gears and talk about a different topic, which is subtyping. And I've gotten really interested in subtyping recently, and I want to tell you why. I mean... So, uh, so basically, um, I see subtyping. Uh, what, what is subtyping again? Right, it's this idea that we can um, have that our type checker can see that a, some a particular type uh, is a subtype of another one. It means that, like, if A is a subtype of B, it means that wherever a B was is required in our code, it would be okay to supply an A. Uh, you know, so I, the sort of classic examples are things like int being a subtype of real or something like that in a numeric, some kind of numeric type system. Uh, that wherever we needed a real number, it would be fine to supply an int. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of, those sort of examples don't, aren't, aren't the ones that are really motivating me, like numeric type systems, although it could be pretty useful for that. If you look at things like rat languages like Racket or Haskell, there's a lot of numeric types in these systems. I mean, numbers have been around for a while, so people have thought of lots of different kinds of numbers, and they have lots of relationships and stuff. So, um, uh, <clears throat> but the w thing that makes me more interested is that when you have subtyping, um, it's a f it, you can think of it as a form of automated programming, like. There's something that there's some code that needs to be there that the type checker is going to just automatically infer for you, and in the case of subtyping, when you have A as a subtype of B, what's being what's you going to infer is some kind of coercion that turns A's into B's. Like in a, in a language, or let's say again a different numeric example, like say int is a subtype of float. Um, you might need to actually convert your int to a different layout to be a float. I'm a little lusty, rusty on my low-level details of numeric representations. So I don't remember if that actually is needed. Um, but um, certainly it could be uh, necessary to actually change the representation of data a little bit. So your program, it's, it's totally fine to just say, oh yeah, I needed a float over here and I call it, passed it an int. Okay, this is fine, but it might be necessary to actually change representation. So there's a little function, some coercion function behind the scenes that could turn an int into a float. And that function, um, it's just annoying to write it as a programmer. I would really be very happy if the type checker would just see that, oh yeah, right at this point, that's where we would need to call this little function. And the type checker would just take care of inserting that for me in my compiled code. Um, and so, you know, I'm interested in subtyping as a way, as giving you a mechanism for avoiding writing some annoying casts or conversions in your code. And this motivation comes, you know, 
why this is a useful feature for me particularly is um, a bunch of the language designs and work we've done here at Iowa has used casts to um, pretty heavily. Uh, and so this approach we had this year at a, a conference about divide and conquer recursion. Um, this is a particular way of getting terminating recursion for that works well with divide and conquer algorithms like merge sort or something. And so the, the particular limitation used, and, and as a programmer, if you wanted to use this approach to recursion, um, there's a, a, a bunch of casts and co sort of coercions that you need to write. And it's that's too annoying and burdensome to ask a programmer, you know, with a straight face to do that. But subtyping um, will take care of that for you. So these lots of little places where you need to um, call some coercion function in this divide and conquer recursion, uh, you could just hope that subtyping could figure out that, yes, I need to do this coercion, and oh yeah, there is such a coercion available, so I can do it. Okay, so this is a little bit about my personal motivation, but I want to step back and um, there's two things I'd like to share today that I'm kind of fired up about. So, I mean, one, I had personally had this question as I sort of started thinking, oh yeah, subtyping would be really useful for some of this stuff. Why isn't subtyping used more in functional programming? So functional programming, um, which I personally am an ardent adherent of, uh, and, and of course, there's a, a very active community in academia and industry of people who are really psyched about functional programming. But type, statically typed functional programming languages like Haskell and OCaml, for example, um, don't use subtyping. The languages use type inference and they use other mechanisms. They use, um, in Haskell, for example, use type classes, which is another way of avoiding, of having the, per, the compiler automatically figure out that some code that needs to be written and just spare you, the programmer, the burden of writing it. All right, in Haskell, if you say, oh, you know, I've got a sorting function and it will sort any um, list of A's where A is in the ORD type class, ORD for ordered. And so effectively under the hood, what this turns into is when you, the compiled code um, calls sort, uh, it actually is passing um, a, a function to do the, the comparison of the elements of the list. So where, where the sort function said, oh, the type just needs to be in the or to type class, that can, class constraint in Haskell lingo turns into an actually an extra argument that gets supplied to the function, which is what is the ordering you want me to apply to the elements. Um, so, but you, as a Haskell programmer, you don't have to write that down. That the um, Haskell's type class system ensures that there's really only one possibility, and then it just is going to put that in that one possibility in there for you. And so this is pretty neat. And uh, Scala is, um, has a, uh, oh, I forgot what they call it. Scala has a similar feature. I want to say it's called unique, but now I'm not quite sure. Theirs was a little more flexible because there was, theirs was scoped, whereas in Haskell, it's, it's kind of global. Like an int can only be ordered in one way. If you want to order it a different way, you need to make a different type so you can have it satisfy the, the ORD class constraint a different way. Um, so, uh, anyways, um, I wondered why isn't subtyping used more in functional programming? And the answer seems to be that if you're not careful, it can you can um, run into a pretty difficult algorithmic problems if you try to combine subtyping with other features, like subtyping polymorphic types. Uh, 
I think you know for the right flavor of some of these features, these some of these things become undecidable, um, and so th- I think that sort of scared off programming languages people um, from trying to incorporate subtyping because the hot languages like Haskell are really trying to push um, fairly fancy typing, and if if every time you know you try to think of a new typing feature, it's going to be this complete adventure, possibly tack- you know having to tackle unsolved problems about the relationship of subtyping with this or that feature, then yeah, that, that sounds like a pretty sensible reason to stay away from it. Um, but so anyway, there's kind of a little bit of an opportunity. As a researcher, I kind of think one of my jobs is to explore parts of the d- design space that haven't really been explored by other people as much. And so, so, so subtyping is definitely kind of an underexplored territory in practical implemented functional programming. That's that's what it seems from my um you know, foray into to seeing what's been done. Um, but uh, there's another reason, you know, I, that I've gotten fired up about subtyping is, you know, so the, the sort of practical side of, of inferring lots of things for you, you know, another great place where that where this would be really handy is um, in working with monad transformers. Uh, so if you've done in much Haskell programming, I mean, I've done like pretty decent amount of Haskell programming, but only at its sort of early intermediate level, I would say, not too fancy. And so I, and you know, this is full confession here, I have not actually written a piece of code using monad transformers, okay? And I started playing with this a little bit because I thought I needed it in some case and um, of some code I'm working on. And I was just kind of, oh yeah, this is like a kind of a little tricky and um, you have to do these liftings. So monad transformers, you you have a monads so you have like maybe the state monad that's providing this pure functional abstraction to um for stateful computation and you know there's different other you know, there's an the io monad for doing io in haskell um and other monads that people like to use so there's reader and writer monads that are kind of um restrictions of the state monad that um don't need the full power of of readable and writable state and anyway, and when you're writing something, you know, realistic, you might find you need several of these different features. And how do you combine them? And monad transformers are one way to sort of combine and get a stack of monads with all these different features kind of combined. But as you have a sequence of features, um, you are forced to do these liftings to lift something from, like, say you have three monads in combined, you, they're, they're combined in an order, and there's sort of an innermost and outermost ones and everything. And to lift a computation um, from the inner monad out to some outer one, you have to explicitly call lifting functions, which, mm, that doesn't look too fun. Uh, and is, you know, going to clutter up code with calls to these little functions, which, though, if you had subtyping uh, in place, could probably, seems like they could be pretty reasonably inferred. Um, and once we start thinking about inferring, using subtyping to infer liftings from of monads and monad transformers, um, then the, uh, the final point, and this is the last thing I wanted to share today, uh, it, this is a, a kind of a big picture idea that I've been thinking about just recently. I had a blog post on my blog about this uh, as well, so some redundancy here to share it with you about that. But um, as you know, if you follow my me, my research stuff at all, you might know I'm pretty interested in what they call strong functional programming or total functional programming. It's a discipline where the compiler is going to ensure 
that all of your programs terminate on all inputs. And um, from a big picture sort of language design, language architecture perspective, um, there's a really, I think, a very interesting question that hasn't been explored, which is, you know, in this, this guy, this uh, researcher, David Turner, who's sort of one of the founding fathers of modern functional programming, he had this paper that I just love and others, I think, found it influential as well in the 90s, mid-90s, talking about this idea of strong functional programming and saying, you know, pure functional programming like in Haskell is wonderful. It's really great. But we can do better by going to um, strong functional programming, this discipline where not only are functions pure, that is, they don't have any hidden side effects, but all the inputs and outputs they need to do their job are actually explicit. Um, we can go beyond pure functional programming to strong functional programming, which is pure functional programming where every program terminates on all inputs. And he you know, makes some arguments for why this is a good um, an improvement. And definitely, um, you know, if you could write your program in a strong way, in this strong functional style, that'd be fantastic because you'd get a stronger guarantee from your compiler. You would know that I can't have any um, bugs due to um, failing to cover cases. That's sort of a simple one in pattern matching, right? If you, if you only cover the cons case for lists and don't cover the nil case, then you could have a runtime error where you, you didn't um, cover a case. But more trickily is the question of termination, you know, functions that might diverge. And so strong functional programming is supposed to rule those out as well. So, uh, and I, I personally, some Haskell code I've been writing recently, keep getting bitten by accidental divergence. So it's, it's really a real bug that I actually would really love to just statically rule out. Like, could you have accidentally have like doubly exponential time behavior? Uh, perhaps you'd have to worry about that. You know, if you're kind of like, yeah, great. My program terminated by accidentally, I, I wrote a buggy code that terminates, but is super slow. Yes, that could happen. But I think that would be less likely than just a dumb case where you accidentally recurse on the in, uh, this very same input that you started with or something like that. So, um, but how do you make strong functional programming practical? Because not every program is going is intended to terminate or not any, every program do you want to try to convince some termination checker to accept. Well, the realization that came to me this week um, is that you can use Haskell's approach to this problem. So in Haskell, you have pure and impure computations. Impure computations live in this IO monad. And so in practice, your program is basically has an IO layer that calls out into the pure layer. So it's sort of a two-layer language. Well, what about extending that so you have a strong layer that, and then a pure layer and then the IO layer? So the pure layer would be allowed to possibly have diverging programs. It would still be pure. But the strong layer, which could be sort of the core language without any sort of monadic qualification, would be for pure terminating computations. And lots of code you want to write would fit in there. And code that didn't behave that way, you'd be sort of asked to be explicit and think about, yeah, I'm going to recognize that this code actually maybe isn't terminating, or maybe I haven't put the work in that might be needed to convince the type checker that it's terminating. And so that's going to be forced to live in this other, in this monad where you'd have to um, explicitly um, recognize that the code might diverge. Um, and so I think that's like a totally interesting language design idea. And my friend Stefan Monnier pointed out to me that in fact, it's so interesting that other people had this idea already. In particular, F-star, which is a theorem-proving and dependently-type programming language, they have a similar setup. And I guess the difference there is that it's very geared to theorem-proving. And so I think maybe, and it's a little more in the, it's like a very imperative mindset there um, within functional programming, which is great. There's good arguments for that. But if you were really 
committed to sort of primarily pure um, and you're not really interested in theorem proving, you just want to write programs, I think there'd be some opportunities to, to explore that um, and go in some different directions. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot for listening. Um, shoot me an email, as always, if you want to um, talk about something. Um, we do have a Telegram group. It's been kind of quiet, so feel free to pipe up on there if you want. All right, thanks again for listening. Take care.